Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Welcome back, everybody. Miguel Iterati here for the Lights Out podcast. We got the MMA detective, Mike Davis, and we are off on another deep dive. Chris Lytle is in bare knuckle land, but uh, he's got us on assignment and we got a fun one. We got Rob Emerson, a real veteran, a guy who's been two decades a pro. So he's probably been fighting for probably three decades. <laughs> Mike, uh, let's say hello to Rob. How you doing, Rob? What's up, guys? Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Cool, man. So, so, Rob, you're part of that California scene. Um, were you into, like, the punk scene as well back then, like that hardcore straight-edge punk? Yeah, yeah, I grew up, like, um, straight-edge, like, in a high school and stuff. Like, I didn't drink or, or smoke weed or anything like that. Like, I was uh, I was one of the straight-edge kids. I'd go all the shows, like, X Up, and uh, we had, like, a little crew, actually, like, a little uh, straight-edge, like, skater crew called like the lords of south county um there's like a youtube video it's, it's fucking kind of lame you can pull it up and watch like we fox 11 did like a special report we we're just little kids i got, got like to get in the fights and shit and the majority of the time i fought guys that were a lot older than me because i was like about 25 like as a sophomore and then i just started lifting and being athletic because i learned i could hit really hard i started knocking guys out you know my small frame and so i started getting a lot of street fights in high school and parties and stuff started knocking guys out and started earning respect for myself that way and then um, I, I had a brown belt in Kyokushin. I started doing like traditional martial arts, but then um, um, I started training Marco Ruas once I was 18. Um, and man, I just fucked been in love with the sport ever since. Um, yeah, crazy. And then, okay, let, let's rewind just a little bit. So you grew up, you really enjoyed street fighting. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I had like Tourette syndrome and ADHD and OCD as a kid. Like childhood was rough for me, especially once I started going to school. And, um, you know, I got picked on a lot. Kids would jump me and it'd be, I'd be outnumbered. Or, like they'd take my backpack off and like throw it in the neighbor's house or just go and spit on my face. I like, just fucking, you know, kids being kids, but it's, it's pretty gnarly, uh, you know, and uh, they can be pretty ruthless. And it forces, uh, you know, you into a corner where I, I, I want to learn martial arts, you know, and I, I was too little to play football and all that stuff. And soccer, I was kind of good at, you know, with footwork and everything. But um, I remember I fell in love with martial arts and I excelled at martial arts quickly. And I found my like, uh, made my passion with that. And um, yeah, I did Kyokushin, this is a hardcore Japanese style, you know, from the time I was about, um, you know, uh, 10 or 11 to like 16. And that's like, a, um, like GSP got a black belt in Kyokushin. A lot of K1 fighters come from Kyokushin. It's, it's basically bare knuckle. It's all body shots, but a lot of head kicks. It's like head kick uh, heavy, you know. So the athlete, the fighters and athletes in Kyokushin, they're very athletic. You know, you gotta you gotta be super athletic to use your legs. You know, all those Taekwondo guys are super athletic, but Kyokushin they'd actually do kumites and fights. Most of the guys got knocked out because it was a lot of spinning back kicks to the body and a lot of head kicks. You know, you can even grab the gi and head kick from super close. Like, it's a pretty gnarly style. And, um, yeah, shortly after that, I started training with Marco Ruas. Um, yeah, wild. Well, I, uh, well, I got a couple more questions about that Southern California scene. So, you're part of a straight-edge gang. You guys became pretty notorious. There's a YouTube video. Um, and, you know, and let's talk about the gang, like, itself, the Lords. 
Ian McCall was a part of it. Eric Apple, both of them had talked about it. Um, was it Micah Katz is the guy that kind of made you guys famous with the news? Um, um, he was just a face. And I think, I think, I think what made us famous is what we not famous, but, but just, they made it such a big deal in the area. Laguna Niguel was like, uh, you know, upper middle-class, like white suburb area. Had we been in like LA County or even Santa Ana, they wouldn't even fucking bat an eye because we were, you know, and, um, yeah, it was crazy. It, what it was, it was the high school being a big enough complaint and like certain people that had enough pull in Orange County made, made a lot of complaints. The high school was a big, a big part of it because um, they got involved in like this investigation and all this and they were trying to throw the book at us, so to say. But yeah, it's crazy. I ended up yeah, doing like, a, you know, um, like nine months, I think, off that just for street fight, just for being part of. And in my life, I've never hit anybody with an object other than my fist. I've never jumped anybody. I've gotten jumped multiple times. I've had multiple broke uh, bottles broken on my head, skateboards. Like I got, I got, I've never been fucking dropped or knocked out. Like I'm good with it. I'm fine, but I would never do it to someone else. I don't need to, to me, that's a coward move. Like I'm all about fucking challenge, like challenges. And that's why I'm down to fucking fight multiple guys or big guys. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. I've just, I've always had that pat that like uh, David versus Goliath, like passion ever since I was a little kid, you know? And, it's why I I still get uh, like high off you know doing the bare knuckle thing now, and I'm like super passionate about that. And um, I think it's true to form as far as spark goes. And for me, ah oh, fuck man, it's a fine, it's a high like like nothing else. It's a fine, it's like a fine wine. You know what I mean? And uh, fuck, I love it. It's cool to see the sport come back full circle and go bare knuckle MMA like Game Bread's doing. Because I, I I was the first American to get a a black belt from Marco who lost and the style was called Valley Tudo, right? So before it was called MMA, the sport was called Valley Tudo, which is a Portuguese phrase meaning no hold barred or anything goes. So the fucking sport comes from bare knuckle, headbutt, soccer stomps, a very violent beginning, you know? So, so you get your black belt under Marco who and, you know, you had talked about there was a news video on YouTube. I, I think you get unfairly criticized for that because you're on that video saying, hey, I made a mistake. I was involved in some stupid stuff. It's not worth it. I, I wish I wouldn't have done it to where nobody else took that route. Yeah. But you're unfairly criticized for doing that. Like everybody makes mistakes in their life. Yeah. You were the and, one at a very early age to admit it. Yeah. And even at that fight, uh, if they watched the footage all the way through. You're they saying would say stop. That I, yeah, I got out of the car and stopped the fight. <clears throat> Who knows what kind of damage had that guy continued beating or how he had that kid got kicked in the head. Maybe we, maybe I would be still sitting for like a, be parting of an attempted murder thing. You know what I mean? Like with, with the way laws are like, I was going to break up that fight, but um, people want to take a little bit of a little bit of knowledge and they, they want to hate people are still hating and talking shit on the internet today. And, and it's just people that, that whatever, like I, I used to pay so much attention to it. Now it's like, I literally pay no attention, but it did bother me for a while especially back when I did the ultimate fighter and all the hatred and shit that was coming out and all that stuff. And, uh, um, fuck, you just, it's not something you learn with age, you know, and wisdom, just like no mind, no matter. And, you know, I, so you started the conversation with that. You had some disabilities growing up, one of them being Tourette's. How have you dealt with that? Fascinating, actually. Um, um, the last 10 years or so, seven years, uh, uh, diligently I've been studying like um, our mental capabilities, human potential and uh, along the lines of alchemy and hermetic arts and all this. And I'm fascinated and 
we can talk a little bit about that, that tonight. But uh, my first experience with the mind, the power of the mind happened um, when I was a freshman. I was about 13, 14 years old. And um, crazy. I had Tourette's. If I were to show you a video of my childhood, I like clicked and twitched and did all this crazy shit, like almost unrecognizable. You know, I like heart full-blown Tourette's. I was at every medication under the sun. I went to like Tourette's meetings every month because the doctors really didn't know what to do with it. Tourette's was a, a neurological disorder that affects your musculatory system, right? And so um, I ditched school a lot. My parents would drop me off at school and I would go run to my friend Brandon McCambridge's house and go play video games usually until school almost got out. And then I would go home like I went to school just because I didn't feel like getting picked on that day or getting spat on or humiliated, you know? And, um, but that particular day, I decided to go to class and I went there. I remember, I'll never forget it. My, my psychology teacher, Mr. Gunderson, and that day he was teaching mental disorders and how, uh, most mental disorders, regardless of the diagnosis, they, uh, you can, you can mentally break them. He said, if you can think of them like a knot, like one of those big ropes that like ties a ship to the dock. And if you can mentally intentionally think picture the um the mental disorder representing that knot and if you can focus on yourself untying that knot he said most mental disorders will dissipate and never come back and if they do they're severely diminished so walking home from school that day i'm thinking about all this i mean you know what you know life pretty much sucks as it is Uh, i'm on all these medications i feel all these side effects they're not really helping out in my situation i'm like you know what there has to be a little bit of truth to this guy if he's up there talking to the kids about it i'm like and i feel in my heart that he's a good human and he has good intentions for us so i said you know what i'm going to try this thing out and what it was essentially was meditation right he couldn't he couldn't just say the word meditation because of the school's curriculum and, um, but I went home that day and, and I usually just grab my, I throw my books on the ground. I usually grab a fucking bowl of fruity pebbles and watch like home improvement or some shit. But I walked home that day. I threw my book bags down. I never, I didn't touch the TV control. I said, you know what? There has to be some truth. And I closed my eyes. And for the first time in my life, I meditated, right? I was raised like Roman Catholic. My mom was born in Italy. So hardcore Catholic. So I've been on the pew on my knees, begging all that, and then told how to pray, but I've never meditated for myself before this moment. Right. And uh, my, my ticks were like, you couldn't go three minutes without a, an outlash happening, a, a tick or a spasm. And if I try to control it and like force myself, it would build up to where I have a, a literal like muscle spasm. It's crazy. It's hard. It's hard to speak about someone who doesn't have, but it's literally a neurological disorder that affects your musculatory system. And it's, it's crazy. It's really hard to explain. But um, anyways, I did this meditation and I, and, I, and I mentally untied this knot. I pitched this big heaping rope that I just untied. And, and, um, and it's representing my Tourette's. And then I went a little bit further and I poured gasoline on that rope and then I lit it on fire. And I remember meditating on the flames and just watching that Tourette's syndrome disorder go up in flames. And I focused on that specifically and I like felt it, you know what I mean? And um, I watched the rope burn to an ash, you know, maybe about 10 or 15 minutes this meditation took. And at the end I went through and I kicked that ash in my foot and I, I just kind of brushed the ash and I watched the ash kind of disintegrate out to the air. I remember it was nothing. It was just like a black mark on the ground where the rope was burning. And I remember I just like slowly opened up my eyes and um, man, a, a minute went by, two minutes went by, the three minutes went by. And I was like, okay. And I'm like, all right, is this really happening? Another couple. Do not like, Oh, 10 minutes went by and I just literally it my whatever my Tourette's went off like as a light switch it wasn't even like I had a couple of ticks and they were slowly like in it from that moment I closed my eyes I've never had another Tourette tick or experience since then no since way 
I swear to my kids, there's no, I'm in the exact state you see me now in from when I opened my eyes from that meditation. Have you ever had a sip of alcohol? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because a lot of people, people are using psilocybin also to kind of reset the brain. Have you ever thought about doing that? Oh yeah. They've, uh, we can have a whole conversation about that stuff. Um, People have no idea about the. I, I subscribe monthly to a, a neuroscience magazine, a quantum physics magazine. I'm a nerd about this. Um, these psilocybins are, they are crucial when we're talking about human potential. And if we're talking about human potential, both on a genetic as well as a conscious level, then psilocybin mushrooms are absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. There's a reason why there are old Rosicrucian and Renaissance paintings of Jesus and the 12 disciples surrounded by psilocybin, right? There's a, there's a reason why the Dead Sea Scrolls, where it says body of Christ, is the Aramaic phrase for mushrooms. Think about that. Before the Inquisitions, before the Inquisitions a thousand years ago, church services used to be three to four hours long. And where it says body of Christ in the New King James Version, there's the Aramaic word for mushroom in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know what I mean? That's so, phenomenal. Dude, it's I love fascinating it. stuff. It's fascinating I, stuff. Rob, I'm sober. I have not had a sip of alcohol since I was 18 years old. Uh, I waited till 25 years of sobriety to go down the psilocybin route on microdosing. It's changed my life. Absolutely. Yeah. It'll change your reality. It'll change yeah. your life and it'll change your reality. Yeah. Yeah. Miguel, you had a question? I haven't asked Marco Ruas, but now I'm fascinated. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, definitely. You know, I I mean, just talk a little bit about walking into Ruas' gym for the very first time, because I I know Pedro Rizzo pretty well. I've met Marco, but, like, um, you know, Marco's like a, a, a legend to me, and I know that he's not a nice man and like, you got to prove yourself and stuff. So why don't you like, and, and so, he is a nice man, but not in certain circumstances. So why don't you talk uh, about that first experience? Yeah. Marco is gnarly. He's, he's for sure. He's for sure. Um, lives up to the hype as far as the, the, the giant that his name is carried. He's a, uh, he's called King of the streets for a reason. A lot of people know who, uh, um, you know, Helio Gracie is. They have Helio Gracie up on their, all the, all the other great, great Gracie Jiu-Jitsu gyms, right? Like he was the, 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 the Don Don or whatever, you know, and then there was Holy Sun underneath him that trained everybody. Well, well, um, Marco is like the Muay Thai version of, of, uh, uh, of these guys and Brazilian Muay Thai, right? So back in the day, there was, there was literally gym wars between uh, these Gracie Jiu-Jitsu academies and these Valley Tudo fighters. And the, 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 Gi, everyone knows sports jiu-jitsu and gi grappling, right? Well, the other side of that was luta livre. Luta livre, right? Was basically no gi grappling, right? And the luta livre fighters also did boxing and muay thai. And um, a lot of these boxing and muay thai fighters, uh, along with luta livre, would win most of these gym wars because um, uh, they knew how to punch and kick and elbow a knee. You know what I mean? The jiu-jitsu guys just knew how to grapple. Um, no well, gi is luta livre. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And guys got to, this is my daughter, Camry, saying hi. We're just talking about martial arts. And um, <laughs> yeah, crazy. He got named King of the Streets. I've heard, I've heard a lot of stories, and I've had a lot of stories confirmed from other people about um, people just getting fucked up by Marco. And um, Pedro Hizzo. 
Pedro and Pedro, Hizzo. man, when I walked down to the gym down there, yeah, Pedro Hizzo was one of my sparring partners. Uh, he would work two shin guards in each leg and um, not pull kicks. Baba Lusa Brow. I mean, killers, dude. Like, these guys were killers of the UC. Everyone knows, like, you know, Tank Abbott, all these guys. Well, Pedro Hizzo was right out there in the list of me. I'm a, I'm a little 19-year-old, 18-year-old kid training with these fucking grown men, killers that have got 100 pounds <laughs> on me. And um, you know what? It may be psychologically um, ironclad. Um, I still tell people to this day, the, the greatest cornering I've ever had was Marco Huas, the greatest coach, the greatest cornerman I've ever had by far. And the man never said a single word during the rounds, not a single word, but he was the greatest cornerman I ever had. He didn't say a word when I fought Jens Pulver and I fought Jens to a decision. Crazy stuff. Marco, if you watch the video, not a word out of it, but he gave me the confidence of like a lion. I swear to God, he gave me the confidence of a lion. Uh, the psychological, the psychology taught me back and I still carry it with me to this day. And, um, most profound stuff. Cool, cool. I got, I got one other name from that early team, and uh, I think she would definitely qualify as a pioneer. Do you ever run into Debbie Purcell, and maybe have a story about her you could share? Man, Debbie Purcell. I remember she was like the first female fighter back then, back in the day. She was on our team as well. Yeah, she trained with us for a long time. I think she might have gotten a black belt somewhere along the lines. But I've done a lot of rounds with Debbie. Yeah, it was cool to see a female around such a male dominant sport. You know, uh, I had a hard time accepting the females coming over to our sports. It was such a, a violent male dominated sport. But, you know, I've, I've been like in, in the corner of camps of like 10 of cyborgs fights. So I've been around legit female fighters. You know what I mean? And um, Debbie was one of them. She was a brawler. She got down. I haven't heard or heard from her. She, she's about to. And it's been a, been a long time, maybe 10, 15 years or so. But she was very much part of our team and very much uh, a big player in women's MMA as far as the early days. Yeah. You forgot probably she was a girl when she kicked you, if I remember, because she kicked hard. No, for sure. Yeah, she came to fight. It was she was uh she was there for the right reasons. You know, there's a lot of girls <laughs> that even that come over to these sports for the wrong reasons, but she was there for the right ones. So let's kind of quantify exactly who Rob Emerson is, and we're gonna do it with his first fight. So on January eleventh, two thousand two, UFC thirty five, EJ Penn and Jens Pulver fought. Jens Pulver pulls off an upset. Nobody thought he would win. Wins the inaugural 155-pound title. His manager, Monty Cox, who we've interviewed and told us a story, said, all we want is what Jens earned or what BJ earned fighting Jens. Just give us 9,000, 9,000, which was more than, you know, what, what Jens had made. Just give us what he got and we'll resign with you. You got to know a pissing contest. Jens leaves with the 155-pound belt. And then on June 29th, 2002, there's an event called Ultimate Wrestling in Minnesota. And Jens Pulver fights this guy, Rob Emerson. It's Rob's first fight ever. <laughs> That's right. Crazy. Yeah, talk about – so this is like a big law of attraction moment, especially for me, you know what I mean? So it's, it's crazy. Uh, it's a big law of attraction moment for me because um, that whole Lord's thing that happened, I had to do that, that nine months in there. Right. And so uh, I think I had my 20th birthday while I was in there. And um, um, when I got out, um, it's crazy. So 
yeah, I watched the BJ Penn fight. I watched Jens beat him. I said, wow, no way. There's a, there's a lightweight division in the UFC. Because for, before that, I was just welterweight and above, you know, Robbie Lawler and all these guys, all these welterweights, you know, Matt Hughes. There was no 55-pound division until that fight. And so I said, oh, wow, cool. Lightweight guys can be UFC fighters. Great. This is what I want to do. And then I got locked up uh, about a week or two after that. I remember I did one little um, closed-fisted, like, amateur bout over at the Lions Den, Ken Shamrock's Lions Den in San Diego. I remember I weighed, I weighed a buck 49 that day, soaking wet. My opponent was 183. But I beat him. I, I fought him, yeah, I think three, five minute rounds or something. But I beat him, I beat him by unanimous decision. And um, Terry Treblecock was there, the, or the manager, promoter for King of the Cage, and some other guys are there. And then um, I remember I had to go, go turn myself in like seven days later. Um, but then I'm ordering all these martial arts magazines while I was locked up, like grappling magazines, uh, full contact fighter was like a newspaper form and black belt. And Jens was on the cover of all these magazines, the UFC belt. Right. And then uh, Sports Illustrated did their first ever uh, UFC ad. And I remember it was with Carmen Electra and then, uh, you know, Randy, uh, Randy Couture, Jens Pulver, Pedro Hizzo was also on that ad. Uh, I think Chuck Liddell. But it was all the all the lightweight. It was all the champions of the UFC, and then Carmen Electra. And it was on the back page of the the Sports Illustrated. I still have that Sports Illustrated saved um, from like twenty years ago. And then I also have the, the Sports Illustrated saved that where it was Roger Verter on the cover. So from the, the time of the UFC, the first print was on the back page to the front page. I have those two Sports Illustrated uh, saved, just from like a fan's perspective. You know, it's kind of cool. But anyways, um, yeah. So here I'm getting all these magazines of Jens. And I'm opening up this posters of him on the inside. So I'm taking my toothpaste and I'm putting posters of Jens up above my bunk. So he's the last face I see before I go to bed and the first face I see when I wake up. Right. And I'm in there to kind of train and hit mitts and stuff and kind of do a pull up to just kind of, it was crazy. I became like the shot caller of that place. And when I was like 19, like ridiculous, I had no business, but um, it was crazy. Um, uh, one of the cops actually went to one of my pancreas fights and I, I knocked out uh three guys or four guys in pancreation he went to one of them and he seen me fight so they kind of kind of took care, care of me or whatever while, while i was in there but um i whatever i did my time i got out on christmas eve and i remember i got out christmas eve and three weeks after getting out i started slowly training back at marco's gym and everything um i got offered to fight the hey though we, uh, we got an offer um how did you feel about fighting jen's little pover i remember them asking me like it was yesterday and I, I didn't skip a beat. I said, absolutely. I said, absolutely. They're fucking, they said, that's what we thought you say. I said, fuck yeah, let's go. And I just thought, right there, they wow. They surprised me with it. They weren't, they surprised me with it. And I just said, fuck yeah, let's go. Uh, how much, uh, how much uh, was the prize purse for that? How much did I get for that? Yeah. Bro, I got fucking $600 for that fight. Okay. So ladies and gentlemen, half of that money, half of that money I had to give to fucking, I have to give the Brad Collier back just to, so he didn't arrest my best friend. That was like, cause that was, I guess, thrown out by security because uh, Jen's like pulled me into the ring and he got upset, whatever. But yeah, so I got 300 bucks literally to fight Jen's over after he beat BJ for the title, you know? So let's talk about this fight. Um, I, I was actually, I was there for this. I was either with my brother or with a buddy. I can't remember. Brad Kohler. So Jens Pulver's 12-2-1, and the UFC 155-pound champion. Rob Emerson's had three pancreation fights, one illegal fight at Lion's Den. Comes in, 
and he fights Jens to a decision. Do you remember you got dropped a couple times, but Jens had a lot of trouble with you and he could not finish you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, so so I remember I got jumped one time on my back and he kind of pulled me in and hit me. But going into that fight, I so I separated my AC joint as soon as I started camp. My arm was literally in a sling. I remember until five days before that fight, my arm was in a sling and I had it taped. So I, I could not, I didn't hit pads, I didn't lift weights, and I didn't spar for that entire camp. And I still fought that motherfucker to a decision. Like, like literally. Do you the remember the audience? The, the, huh? Remember the audience? Oh, yeah, it was crazy. I remember how humid it was. I remember how fucking humid it was. Gosh. But I kept landing kicks. All, all I could practice because I was fucking, all I could practice was that lead leg kick. As soon as he planned to throw that left hand, we just practiced chopping his lead leg and having him trip. And it landed. I landed good with that left hand. But I felt it that when I sat down to throw, that my shots wouldn't get through. I didn't have, like, the, the repetitions. I know for a fact that if I didn't have that injury, I would have fucking knocked him out. I would have fucking finished him. I would have finished and finished him. Fuck, it's crazy. Did you do you remember the audience reaction when they announced him as the winner? No, I don't remember it so long ago. They booed. Fuck. Really? Yeah, That's they right. booed. Yeah. Dang. So we had this kid from Southern California, skater wow. dude, come in to the Midwest. You know, this is kind of Miguel's from the East Coast, but we accept him as one of us. Comes yeah. into the Midwest and like takes Chen's pulver to a decision. Like it was, it was shocking. It was shocking. Where were you mentally going into this? Uh, you know what? It was, it was, uh, it, was uh, it was a mental hurdle. I had to also uh, manage at a very young age. So they gave us a warm up room. That's about like the size of this room here in this little Airbnb I'm staying at right out here in Massachusetts. It's about literally this big. So I got my corner right here chilling. And then I got over there in that corner. I literally got fucking Jens pacing back and forth with headphones, just pacing, fucking red, warming up to kick my ass. With fucking, I think it was Matt Hughes and Robbie Lawler were in his corner, if I remember yeah. correctly. And Jeremy Horn was there too. Jeremy Horn, fucking a dude. So I know these guys. I'm a fan of the sport actually, but Jeremy Horn, Robbie Lawler. Matt Hughes and fucking fighting Jens. Like, think about this, dude. You know what I mean? Like, I brought my best friend, like my fucking, you know what I mean? Like, Marco, like crazy shit. Like, so it was, talk about, like I said, something very special takes place in the human being in our sport. So the reason why I have this tattoo on my head. So this man is the only undefeated gladiator champion of ancient Rome, right? He earned his freedom in the process by never dying in the Colosseum. Um, something special takes place in, in the human genome when we're put in a position or a fight or flight and we fucking sack up and we respond with courage instead of fear. And so I fucking learned then about how to man the fuck up. And, uh, you know, I think during that time as a young kid, you know, and, and then being 19 and, and, and in a fucking you know, jail and doing not nine months of that in with these other men, I had to learn psychologically how to grow up as well. I think it also helped me manage the nerves that I dealt with when I got out you know, fighting gens. Um, so but, the after party, your friend actually got into an argument with Matt Hughes. Oh, shit, is that what happened? It was Matt Hughes and Brad Colbert. Yeah. yeah. What the fuck? That's what happened. Yeah. And then he that's got why he took 300 bucks from you. Fuck, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I hate to say it, but that, that could be a Brad Kohler setup. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, 
I need three. I need to get three hundred bucks back out of him because six hundred sounds like a lot to get out of Brad. Did, did did you even weigh in? I don't know, bro. I don't even remember now. I, I remember how humid it was in that fucking building. Oh, the the the, the tarp, the canvas was like plastic. It was like tarp you would like use to like cover shit with, and it was sweaty, so it was like literally slippering. It was crazy. So Brad Kohler is the famous promoter for multiple reasons. But he was the guy that didn't want to pay anybody, so he faked a heart attack and had his own ambulance and EMTs take him out um, to kind of drop him off at the hospital so he, um, he, he could leave with the cash. So um, like when you said – that's one of the specific reasons I asked for your purse. And in true Brad Kohler fashion, he got half of it back out of you. That's good. Um, he didn't let us down. Unreal. Didn't let us down. Unreal. <laughs> yeah. So – you can tell, like, the thing, Marco Huas, in my opinion, is kind of like the Brazilian version of Mark Coleman. Like, they don't ever ask you to do something that they wouldn't do themselves. But the things that they would do themselves are so batshit crazy that no one in the world or their right mind should do them. And they just look at you like, why wouldn't you do it? Like, it's just, it's a different type of human being. And you can tell by... Your next fight, you fought a 6-0-1 Jamil Perkins, or Jamal Perkins at King of the Cage, December 7th, 2002. He's from the 808 Fight Factory. And Miguel, this guy knocked out J.R. Palmer on two occasions. Yeah, that's your second. That's your second fight, dude. Fuck, I, know, I, almost, knocked, I almost knocked Jamal out, too. Fuck, I hit him with a spinning back fist. And I, I didn't drop my, I almost ran. I was going to do a jump me. I think they have that fight on, on, uh, on uh, fight pass. They have all my old King of the cage fights on fight pass. Actually. Yeah, I couldn't find that one. I tried it. Oh. I, only, I only saw one. It wasn't that. Oh, crazy. You, um, yeah. you mentioned that you, you, uh, I think your pancreas fights, you mentioned Terry Treblecock was there. So here, yeah. are you working with him at this point? And how, how was your pay on your second fight? Um, fuck, was that King of the Cage? I'm not sure. I, can, I don't remember what the King of the Cage. I don't think King of the Cage sales were like ticket sales. So I remember they try to make the guys hustle and make ticket sales, and we got like a small percentage. But we were fighting for beans and potatoes. You know what I mean? Back then, it was beans and potatoes. You know what I mean? Like, man, I remember you were I fight. You were I favor used to fight on these cards, King of the Cage. You know what I mean? Uh, crazy man. So, so yeah. Rob, we're sitting here in the Midwest. You know, it's California is so much different than like Chicago. And we're thinking, man, these King of the Cage guys are getting so much exposure. You know, they're not making UFC money, but they got to be doing something. And everybody we talked to that's fought on King of the Cage just says like one horror story after another, especially in the early days. Yeah, it was. They were pumping out shows like they, he was he was definitely trying to do the uh, uh, quantity over quality with the King of the Cage. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Fuck. Dude, it was like fuck. the girls gone wild of MMA. That's what yeah, it was. Yeah, for reals. And he was on to something good. Like he could have tailored it, had good hands. But man, I was, I've done, I've been there so many times out there to Soboba. I remember when Diego Sanchez used to fight on that card. I was there at Mike Diamond and Diego Sanchez and Mike the Joker was fighting Diego Sanchez and Diego was on our RV, like warming up, doing like yoga meditation and shit in the middle of the RV. Like right before he's going to go out and fight our guy. Like, and crazy, but it was a heavy, it was a good staple of like uh, Southern California MMA, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
it, it captured your guys. Like it, 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 it documented everything. It was super cool. So you lose the decision to Perkins. So now you're Owen two. in the meantime, like, like Rob's fights kind of lay out like a story. In the meantime, Chris Brennan and Marco Huas have a falling out. So what does Marco do? He puts the third fight that Rob Emerson is in takes place at the Hitman Fighting uh, Organization, May 2nd, 2003. And it's kind of one of those fights where it's like a, a pretend fight in case the state comes. We all got to pretend like we're actors. Like it's one of the most bizarre situations in regards to having an MMA event. Please tell us about this. Yeah, so uh, this is, from my understanding, the first legal or the first illegal MMA show. First illegal, right. Yeah, in, in, in Orange County. Because, um, yeah, they had to have it set up contract-wise that it was look, looking like an exhibition, right? And they, they figured that in the fight that Chris Brennan was going to take me down and submit me. But um, I thought there was a couple guys that turned my name down that didn't want to fight me. There's a few guys, and Chris is actually the third or fourth name. And that was a big card. If I remember, like, Baba Lou fought on that card. Yeah. Um, Chael Chael Sonnen. Yeah, yeah, man, shit, big card. Um, and, yeah, you know, that was one of my favorite fights. I remember uh, we did, like, a catchweight at 165, I think. And, uh, man, Chris threw in the towel. I remember he didn't come out for that second bell, the second round. And then his corner later told me that he went back out there at the end of the first round. And he was like, hey, throw the towel, and I don't want to go back out there and get knocked out. Like, straight up, just like. Yeah, Jeremy yeah. Williams was in his corner. Jeremy Williams, he's yeah, he's only told me that. We're all good friends, man. You're a big, uh, you know, Southern California, you know, family. But man, so crazy we, we, yeah, we had Brendan on, and in essence, he said, "I didn't take it serious. I knew he was a tough guy." He's like Marco and I were were having some issues at the time, and I couldn't give Marco the satisfaction. He's like, "I bitched out." He's like, "I didn't go out. I should have went out." He's like, he called himself a bitch for that. That's what he yeah. did. Yeah, he manned up. I'm surprised he manned up. Good on him. Good for him. I mean, it is what it is. You're not going to be proud of every moment. You know, it is nah, what it for is. Sure. For sure. Heck yeah. I know. So, the, the Chris Brennan was a huge fight. Would you not agree? Yeah, it was a, it was a big fight. He was a big name back then. He was the king of the gauge champ and everything. And, uh, yeah, for, for, for the beginning of the sport, for pioneering the sport, especially in Southern California, uh, Chris Brennan was a staple name for sure. Did did you have any additional pressure because of his him and Marco's kind of falling out? Yeah, Marco made me so confident though that I, that I was going to beat him, and then and then uh, we actually had a sparring match one time where I kind of cracked him and I, and like Chris fell over the thing and and uh, we and then he kind of he kind of got up and kind of got kind of heaved or whatever, and then uh, we actually ended up grappling and like we snatched each other's legs up and we were like going to crank each other's legs and shit and, and like ankle hooks. And he's like, you want to fucking go outside? And let's go fucking outside. And it kind of got kind of personal like that. But I knew, like, I already cracked his ass. I'm like, fuck, I just got to crack my little gloves and he ain't going to do shit. And, yeah, I don't know. I, I was confident in my anti-jujitsu and my anti-rest and, yeah, my, my anti-jujitsu, basically. And my power, I knew that that trumped his jujitsu game. And I knew he wasn't going to fuck on me on the feet. So I knew I, I, knew I was going to get a TKO or knockout. I didn't expect him to throw the towel in. Um, How was dealing with uh, Tito Ortiz and Paul Herrera as promoters? Um, they were all right. They were there all right as promoters. Um, I know there's some, I've heard some, you know, different things about Paul Herrera and these guys in the past, but I've known Tito for a long time. And um, yeah, I was actually helping him run his gym back in Huntington Beach too, before I came out to Arizona. Um, 
a huge name for uh, Southern California MMA and Asco. A lot of these guys, Southern California, had a big part in playing for the sport and where it's at now. You know. So with uh, with Chris Bryan, prior to this, did you fight in an illegal fight in Wilmington against a Goker guy? Yeah, shit. Yeah, Goker. Yeah, that's right. I remember that Wilmington. Yeah, San Pedro. Yeah, Chris cornered you. Yeah, it was called like caged combat or some shit. Or like, yeah, yeah, caged combat with a K. But yeah, yeah, I knocked that guy out. I think. How were these illegal fights being held? Was it just like on gym, like in in gyms on mats? In this was in some like this is some abandoned like uh, boxing gym. Yeah, up in San Pedro. It was like a fucking movie, dude. It was like some abandoned fucking boxing gym, like on the fucking docks of San Pedro, like crates and cranes going. It was like a fucking Ninja Turtle movie. I swear to God, it was was a trip. What was the price money for this at that time? Oh, no money. There's no money. There's zero money. No, there's zero money. Was it a little dangerous in the audience? There's fucking fucking broken glass on the ground. The cage was literally a metal construction fence. There is no like like plastic. Like a dog kennel? Like rubber coating, how there's on the fence now. Like it was a metal construction fence. <laughs> it's crazy. Fuck. Yeah, Fuck the people yeah. like I, here. I remember the first one I went to, the first one to go watch. I was fucking, I was in high school. I remember to go watch this, this older guy named Bao, uh, Bao Quach, who uh, Bao was on for a long time. And he was fighting. And they were, hey, you guys want to go watch this, this fucking illegal cage fight up in LA? So, yeah, let's go check it out. And we went to go literally go watch. And I remember watching it. And, um, I had a fucking Corona. I had a Corona in one hand, a pack of donuts in the other hand from a, a liquor store across the street. And I had a black eye from getting in a brawl the night before. And um, I was I was sitting down watching these fights and the promoter comes up and um, I was like, hey, man, how much do you weigh? I'm like, I don't know. Like above 50. He's like, hey, you look like a fighter. One of the guys dropped out. He's like, you want to you fight? And I was like, what? And my friends are like, fucking do it. You have nothing else to lose. You know, go in there and fucking... Uh, that was the fight I think Chris cornered me on. So I had no fight, I had no fighting experience. I literally went in there and um yeah, I fucking knocked the guy out in the first round. <laughs> yeah. Fuck yeah. That's right, because Chris was in my corner. Holy shit, that was that fight. He was from go-karts. Yeah, purple bottles and shit. So like at these jujitsu tournaments at this time, were there almost riots taking place at them? Was there any fights at this? We we've heard stories in regards to just the jujitsu scene there. Yeah, I think people get pretty competitive. Like, as far as, like, uh, like any combat sports, people are going to obviously, like, there's ego involved, right? Right. So. I, Was I there know, a like, gang called the Jits Gang? Bro, I don't fucking know. I've never heard of that. Like, from my experience, like, most guys that are just, like, just based they listen it takes a special fucking psychology to learn how to trade punches and learn how to deal with the stress of getting punched with fucking bare knuckles like bare knuckles can fucking split skin it can break orbitals it can knock teeth out it's like getting hit with a little fucking mace you know what i mean like when i fight i that's my those are my intentions my fists are fucking mace and they're gonna cave your skull and they're gonna knock your fucking teeth out they're gonna split your head open they're gonna break your nose you know, malice fucking. And, and I don't know if Jitsu guys are programmed and, and this, how the psychology um, of that, if it comes to like street fighting, I've never heard of anything like that. I don't, I don't know. I think guys have too much respect. Like, no, the other people train too. And is that a thing? I don't know. I never heard of, 
the Jits gang. Okay. Yeah, was, we, we've had a few people on here that said that there was almost riots that took place. And it was usually like Gracie versus the highest stand guys, the Joker people. So I wasn't sure if you'd see that. I, I didn't participate in like a lot of the jiu-jitsu competitions. I've only been to so many, um, so I can't say. I just, yeah, and I've been, I did go to the more kickboxing circuits and all those shows and Muay Thai shows back then and everything, so. Okay. Well, so. your next fight is against a, I mean, this is Marco Huas. And I, I hope you don't take this the right way, but I, I'm not sure Marco is a really good manager. I think he's a very brave manager, but I, it doesn't really make him a good manager because your next fight's against you. Now you're one in you're one in two at this point against a world champion and a guy that's got six six wins, no losses. Uh, well, you know what? And you beat Chris Brennan, which is an absolute just feather in a cap. But your next bout's against Javier Showtime Vasquez, who's nine and two. That's got a win over Romina Sato who yeah. is arguably the best in the world at 155 at this time. Yeah. Yeah, Javi was a stud back then. He was the king of the cage champ. And uh, I remember that fight. We fought at the – it was the first time there was a show in Vegas that was not the UFC. And it was a pancreas. It was a pancreas show. And we fought – Judo. The, the, it was a Shudo show. Shudo. Ah, Shudo. Shudo. Yeah, it was at the, the, the Orleans Hotel up there. That's right, Shudo. And – uh I remember the winner of that show was supposed to, was supposed to go to the UFC and fight, I think, Sean Shirk or something like that. And um, fuck, I ended up losing a super close, I think, a split, split decision. decision. Yeah, to Javi. And uh, he ended up, I think, retiring after that fight. I think I blew his ACL out. And I think that was the second time his ACL got blown out. And, um, man, crazy. I remember, I remember that it was neck and neck. And um, someone's going, oh, high kick, high kick. I was like, fuck, I throw a high kick, you might catch me. And I just, just fucking, and I remember I threw the stupid high kick and I fucking took me down off it. But he couldn't do with it, anything with it, you know, and he got back up and, fuck, I lost that fight super close, you know. But, he was also um, the king of the cage champ as well. Yeah, yeah, wrestling stud, king of the cage champ. I was just like a tough striker that learned some, like, wrestling defense because I was trying to strike, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, no one ever beat me up or fucking held me down and, like, made – I was, these are all super close neck and neck fights my entire career, you know? Okay. So Rob Emerson for everybody at home keeping score is now one and four. Yeah. It now gets worse. <laughs> if, if, if that's even yeah. possible. So April 18th, 2004, he flies all the way to Japan hometown and you fight Mishima who's 15-3-2 out of Cobra Kai, Japan. And keep in mind, 15-3-2 Japan is insane. A 500 record in Japan, you're very good. 15-3-2, you're special. Fuck, Mishima, that was for the deep, I think the world championship of deep, which is the sister company or sister promotion of Pride back then. Right. And uh, fuck, I think I took that fight on like eight days notice or something ridiculous. Um, fuck, I remember how tired I got in that fight. Close fight, though, too. I almost fucking knocked that motherfucker. I caught him a couple yeah. combos. Man, fuck, dude. That was a good fight. I'm guaranteed, <laughs> guaranteed if I had a full camp, I would have took that motherfucker out. Again, it was, it was, I remember for sure it was less than two weeks. I think it was eight or ten days' notice. And fuck. That was dead, the jet lag. Oh, it was nuts. I remember. I'm fuck. I remember I made weight, and then I remember walking home from weigh-ins. It was a Domino's, and I ate a full fucking large pizza. I remember fucking throwing up, having the shits all night, like super dehydrated the next day, like just the worst physical experience. 
but still fought the motherfucker to a decision. He was all fucked up after he came and talked. Like, man, Eric Apple was out there with me for that. That's right. Holy shit. Was it in Osaka or somewhere? Where was it? I don't have it. I don't have that. Wow. Dude, so yeah. in essence, it's your second. One more time we go. Yeah, Umeda Stella Hall in Osaka. Oh, that's right. Fuck Umeda. So you fly, that's right, you fly to Tokyo, you got to take the uh, the bullet train, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. I remember Osaka was right back and there was all these castles and shit everywhere. Because, yeah, you saw these castles while you're on the train. That's right. So why would you eat at Domino's when you've got sushi there? I mean, it's... Wow. Dude, I was, like, such a picky eater back then. And, like, there was... Um, I remember it was late at night. There's not very many options. And I remember there was a Domino's literally like walking to the fucking, walking to the hotel. And I remember just thinking, oh, fucking pizza, there's carbs. You know, like I wasn't a nutritionist. Dude, I fucking, that's the kind of guy I was. I was fucking drink beers, like eat pizza. Like and I was good at, I was tough enough to go fucking fight with these monsters without even respecting my body. Like and shit, you know what I mean? Like, fuck, I wish I had like the knowledge that I have now. I wish I had it back then. But you're, so you you're on the fly. You learn on the fly at a high level, though. It's it's gonna Fuck pay yeah. off. Fuck yeah! The human being is resilient. You know what I mean? The human being is fucking fascinating. You put us in water, we're gonna fucking swim, not sink. You know what I mean? That's what I love about these sports, man. That's what I love about martial arts. Is hold hold each 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 individual is held accountable. You know what I mean? To be the best version of himself. That's what I love about Jared Cannonier, man. And working with him is he he totally gets that. It's, it's you versus you out there. You know what I mean? The opponent doesn't he's a ghost. They don't the, the name doesn't matter. It's a fucking shell. It's a husk. It's you versus you out there when you show up. You know what I mean? And uh, uh for my my personal MMA path and journey has been, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's priceless to me. And um, man, that's crazy. <laughs> Good for you. You should be. You deserve to be proud. Mike, I, I also I want to tease you a little bit. It's Dakan Janasuke Mishima. Just just FYI. Oh, yeah. Don't call it Dakan yeah, Janasuke, it. if you want to try it at some point. <laughs> yeah, not happening. Yeah, yeah. So after you get back from Japan, first off, how was your experience, fans? Because you had a hell of a fight. I know you made a really good impression there. Yeah, it was awesome. I remember I came back there, fought for a pancreas, I think, again. And um, I have, I think, I think I had two wins, uh, two losses in Japan, or maybe three wins and one loss. Um, yeah. But yeah, I loved it every time. I was a martial arts nerd, so I was just geeked out on getting the fucking, getting, you know, paid to go fly out and fight in Japan. I was just fucking, I was geeking out on that alone. So it was cool. Well, Miguel. We're going to look at the stark contrast of Japan as compared to Total Combat May 30, 2004 in Tijuana, Mexico. <laughs> Holy shit. Where you finally got a decent fight. Wow. You're probably the toughest one, one in five guy in the entire world. I would even say, like, in terms of one in five rankings, I think you've clearly got the, the number one spot permanently. Um, your next fight is against Justin Berkeley. <laughs> who looks physical, you know, on paper he's one and one, but I think he's got four or five fights. At least that's what I could find. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, he was tough. He was scrappy. I remember he came to fight. Um, 
which was, yeah, I remember I was trying to, I had him out and trying to put him away at punches. And I remember I was pissed off. I couldn't knock him out. Uh, so I was just getting too spastic, but I remember I calmed down and choked him. But yeah, I was the first guy where it wasn't like a world beater, a world champion or some collegiate fucking, you know, whatever. So yeah, it was cool. And whenever I fought guys like that, or it was like more evenly matched, if they matched me up with guys like numbers wise, well, I slept all those guys. Like, fuck, if you guys have knocked out, they didn't wake up at all for a long time. And so I knew I had power. I knew uh, if guys were just trading, I can land my fucking shots that guys are going to drop. You know, because God, God, other guys do that too, especially when we fought, like, and they would block or parry or check. They would feel my power and shins, and they would try to, you know, wrestle fuck me and try to, you know, stall it out. And, you know, fuck, dude. I was big on that, man. I hated guys when they tried to do that. I was so about – I was I was ready to go down to fucking blaze of glory. You know, I love that, like, you know, fucking fight or die mentality, you know, like kill or be killed. Well, you went into the second round with him, and I, I, I haven't seen the fight. But did you have to adjust to the level because where you've been fighting is so high and now you had to kind of almost tune it down a little bit in order to kind of catch your timing? Yeah, yeah. There was an element of that for sure. That's interesting you brought that up. That's exactly what it was. It was like I was better than that guy. I was better than that arena. I was like better than like all the talent on the card. I felt like especially after experiencing all the world-class talent that I had previously, it was for sure like a dumbing down. And um, that's what I mean. It was kind of wild and crazy. And that's why I just didn't want to make any mistakes. I, I, I actually was more nervous about finding that because I couldn't lose to a guy that I was not supposed to lose to, you know? So. Well, your next fight's against JC. Plenty of skills. Joe Camacho, King of the Cage, September 24th, 2004. Joe is kind of one of those footnotes from the California scene that, you know, we, we try to remember. Yeah, he was he was a he was a name in the king of the cage circuit. He was he was he fought in a lot of cards back then. I think he was the king of the cage champ at one point. Yeah, uh, fifty five or forty five. But I remember he was tough. That was another. I think back then the fights were two rounds, two five minute rounds, maybe three. But yeah, he was super tough. Another good jiu-jitsu black belt. Um, I remember I landed a couple of knees. He was super tough. A lot of those guys came forward punching. Their hands would drop, you know. And I I try to rely on that when I try to catch these guys, but. Man, Joe was cool. I mean, yeah, he's tough. Yeah, he opened up a jiu-jitsu school, Camacho BJJ, died of a heart attack at 41. Definitely a staple from that, that California scene. Um, oh, he was a little bit older than me. November 14, 2004, King of the Cage, Randy Belverde from Millennia MMA. I, I oh. think he doesn't get enough credit for his durability. Yeah, Randy Velarde was tough as heck, man. I remember he was tough. He was durable. He was another just tough little Southern California wrestler. Just, you know, went out, went out there and brawled. Again, he fought in the King of the Cage circuit a, a, lot, a lot. Just a tough a, a tough puncher and wrestler, you know. But he, gave me, he, he had some heavy hands, too. I remember one of the fights, yeah, he, uh, uh, it was like a sprawl or something. We were getting up off the ground, and like, as I turned around, he, like, punched over my shoulder. Boom, and kind of hit my chin. I kind of dropped and got back up. That was one of the times I've, I've ever been dropped. But I mean, I I woke up once I hit the ground, like this before I even hit the ground. I wasn't like I wasn't I was never like flat back, but like that was one of them. It was like a punch. I literally didn't see like right in my shoulder. I think that they have that fight on, on King of the Cage, that one and the Joe Camacho fight. Yeah, so I mean, it's you had a little degree of success with the two wins, Valverde. You lose a decision. You then take a short notice fight, February nineteenth, two thousand five. You fly all the way to New Orleans, the reality combat fighting where you 
go up against in their main event against Melvin Gillard. Oh, that's right. That fight I took I, that fight I took on seven or eight days notice as well. I remember that freaking crazy. That, that fight was like in a square, in a square cage. But I remember I remember that first round of that fight too. Freaking, I remember I, I was on top. Bop, bop, I, I elbowed him. I elbowed his eyes and shit. And he's like, he's like squealed, like stop, stop. And I remember I stopped back and I looked at the ref like, you're gonna stop this. And like, and the ref act like he didn't hear it. And then Melvin like kicked his chest, foot off my chest, and rolled back and like turtle shelled, and then the bell rang. I'm like, what the fuck is motherfucker? And I remember Melvin even gave me the trophy after. He's like, hey, you won that fight. I'm like, fuck. It's not, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not my record, you know. But so I remember that guy motherfucker socked me with a punch and he gave me fucking cauliflower ear instantly just from a punch. Fuck, I still Melvin, he has this like weird, it's almost like his footwork. He walks in like a triangle and he baits you in and then he hits you with a hook. Yeah, wide hooks. In their heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he has a real springy frame, a real springy base, and he'll bounce at both legs, and he'll try to get you coming in. He, he's kind of bouncing. As soon as you cross the line, bam, he springs forward and throws. You know what I mean? And he's explosive, man. Yeah, he's explosive, too. Did he have, like, I mean, Snoopy, like, shoes on at that time? Uh, I don't remember. I don't sure. I remember. I remember I had a back trying on him, though, too. And uh, from the back, I remember he. I remember he literally had. He was. He was greased up, dude. There was a definite. The def, definition of being greased up, like he grabbed two fingers, like freaking like a Vaseline. Like I remember, like this motherfucker. I was even trying to submit him. I was just trying to hang on, like punch him from his back. But yeah, fuck. I remember. Oh my god. I remember how sick I was too. I was as sick as a dog. I think I had like a one oh one, one oh two fever, crazy ass fever. There's a picture I took right before the fights, pale white, fucking. But I went out there and fought, dude. I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna not show up and fight. But oh my god, that's another one of those fucking dog shit physical experiences, like the Mashima one in Japan, where had I had a full camp, had I fucking been healthy and well, I would have fucking took that guy out. See, and I, I believe you're telling the truth to us, but the type of training that you had at Marco Huas. How much better shape do you think you could have been at? Because you guys were always kind of in fifth gear there. Yeah, we were. It was. There was a lot of sparring, a lot of pad work, a lot of. But you know, it made me. It made me tough. It made my. And, and I use a lot of that stuff now when I'm when I'm when I'm pushing classes and running pro practice over there. Is like a lung power, lung explosivity has to be trained. You know, like your there's muscle memory, but like your cells have memory. Like every single cell in your body has memory, and. Um, I think, you know, I like the old, uh, you know, uh, Dutch style of kickboxing, heavy bag work, heavy pad work, and uh, that builds that explosive muscle tissue. So, yeah. I Did like you get paid for that? That, that promoter's kind of slippery. Um, yeah, you know, I, don't, I don't remember. I remember it was a pretty shady experience. I think I think the promoter was uh, Melvin Gillard's coach at the time, too. Yeah, it was um, Yeah, <laughs> yeah some, some sketchy shit. Um, but then again, you lost a split decision. You lost a split decision against the student of the promoter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah, but fuck, these are like legit names that, like, I mean, that one win could have changed the course. You know, any one win at that time was so smart. My career was so sensitive that it would have changed the course, you know, a long way. Even like the Hobby Vasquez fight and that fight, like. So yeah, it's been. Um, 
man, for a long time, I thought, fuck, is it like some kind of fucking bad luck? Like, what the fuck is it with these fights? Like, I'm losing, you know, getting these great opportunities to then lose them by like the fucking decision. So um, it was rough, you know. But, you know, I, I always just chalked it up as, you know, I'm getting the experience and I'm here for the I'm here for the journey and here for the adventure. And fuck it, I'd rather go down fighting all the fucking tough guys I can rather than fighting a bunch of fucking pussies and tomato cans and then having some false, false sense of security, you know? Yeah. So, Rob, you're three and six at this point. Did you ever think about quitting? Fuck no. Fuck no. Not a chance. Not a chance, dude. Fuck no. I was still love. I was still fucking getting this refights and shit, knocking dudes out. Like I was knocking guys out in the gym. Like I knew I could fucking sleep dudes, you know, like, yeah. Ask all my sparring partners at all the gyms. Like I was, a, you know what I mean? I've been in some fucking wars in the gyms, like, and I loved it. I'm still, I still love it. I'm still, love it. I'm just as passionate now than I ever was. Um, fuck. Yeah. I've never well, thought about quitting. Well, when I, you know, when I, when I, t- when I look at your record, I start thinking to myself, you know, where's his mental state at? But what about the people that he surrounds himself with? At this point, you got Max Muscle, Fight Sport Gear, Dana Point, OPK, and OC Tattoo that are sponsoring you. So you might be coming up short, but the people in the industry or people that know who you are, they also believed in yourself at this point. That had to help. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That, that was, you know what? I was, uh, everyone else always believed in me. That was a huge thing. Was everyone else always believed in me because they saw me dropping these guys in the gym. They know about my knockout power. They see me, you know, getting fights in the street. Like they've seen, I've, they've all believed in me, but it was, it was my belief in myself was always the biggest thing was the biggest hindrance in my career was my lack of belief in myself. I didn't feel worthy enough. You know, they call it like, um, you know, uh, um, uh, imposter syndrome, right? It's a psychological term for it. Like you get yourself in a position and you doubt why you're in that position. You know, like, how did I get here? I don't deserve to be here. I shouldn't be here. And a lot of that negative thinking, you know, as a kid and just growing up and even my career, and it came down to my fights. Like, oh, I'm, don't, pull, don't pull the trigger on this combo or don't shoot my right hand out because what if he blocks it or shoots underneath me and, oh, shit, what if I throw that and it doesn't work and I get tired and I get knocked out in front of everybody? And what if, what if, what if? Well, what if is just a different face for fear. That's all that shit is, dude. What if, anxiety, that all, all that shit is just fear. You know what I mean? If you fucking knew like you knew like you knew that you were a fucking little demigod walking through this life and you could fucking never fail and every loss is a lesson, then fuck, you would walk through life a little bit more fucking lighthearted. You know what I mean? Like, hey. There's no wrong. There's no lot wrongs or losses here. It's all a fucking experience. Like, let's go walk through that fire. You know, I wish I had that mindset now to kind of burn the ship's mentality, you know? And, um, well, uh, yeah. you go back. Well, here you're in King of the Cage. Once Julian Simoniego Montezuma from the damage fight team, you finally get a gift of an opponent. Yeah. Yeah. And that was not right. Fuck that guy. That guy didn't wake up for a while. But that's the level. That's the kind of show King of the Cage was too. Holy shit! Yeah, I remember I knocked that guy out. He didn't get up for a long time. Were you a ticket seller? 
Yeah, yeah, I sold tickets. Yeah, people came out. I think I sold like roughly about 50 tickets or so. I mean, 50 to 100 every time I came out. That's um, decent, dude. That's decent. Yeah, yeah, for those shows. Yeah, 50 to 100 was good. Um, and it was cool. People turned out. They, uh, out back then, it was cool. You know, UFC was the big shows, but they were only doing those like bi-monthly. They maybe had six shows a month. So real true fans. And most of the fans from Zabower who had drove out from Southern California. So... Yeah. Did you ever have any dealings with Armando Garcia, the former California State Athletic Commissioner? I know that name. He's the one that used to shut everybody's shows down and disqualify people for paperwork. And yeah, you know what? I told that motherfucker I fought on like I think the second, the second legal show ever in California was down in San, was down in Amir, uh, uh, Del Mar Air Force Base. And it was the first, the first legal show was a strike force show. I think the and, first legal uh, show was Total Combat in San Diego. Was it Total Combat? Yeah. Oh, and then, well, then, 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 then I think there was, uh, I think it was, I think that was the show I fought. I fought this guy, Jamie, uh, what's his fucking name? Jamie something. He's out in Man. Arizona now, actually. Jamie um, Schmidt, yeah, Jamie it. Schmidt. Schmidt. Marshall, get your next Jamie. fight. Yeah, Jamie Schmidt. Yeah, I think that was this. I thought it was the second legal show at the time. Was it Total Combat? Well, what was the name of that promotion? It was Total Combat. March 11, 2006 was the first legal show in California. It was in San Diego. Um, Eric Del Fiero, obviously the, uh, yes. the promoter. Yes. Dominic That's Cruz's right. head of Alliance, Dominic Cruz's coach, longtime That's coach. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, the, the, so California State Athletic Commissioner, you had words with him. Yeah, that was that fucking show. That was that motherfucker, dude. Yeah. Um, I think I hopped the fence or some shit. I hopped the fence. And he's all something over. Hey, hop that fence again. I'm going to fucking take something out of your purse or something. I'm going to find you. I'm like, where's the fine going to? He's like, a charity. I'm like, fuck, it's for a good, for, it's for a good cause. Take whatever you want. And he did, and he suspended my my coach. Colin was all pissed off, and like maybe write a letter and shit. I think back, email, whatever. I think he fined me. I was the first fighter in California to ever get fined because it was the first legal show or whatever. But dude, that motherfucker guy. I remember I knocked out, and he didn't get up for a while. I remember out backstage, um, he got up to you're like, talking about. Uh, you talking about Jimmy Schmidt? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so just so everybody knows, Jimmy Schmidt, three and one. Uh, from Brandon Ness's gym, Nest. He's a legit fighter. He's also the uh, ring in the cage champion at the time. Like it's a hard fight. Yeah, he's he's a big he's a big boy too. Big I, remember he that. I remember he 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 drops. He didn't wake up for a while, like five or ten minutes, and then we were backstage. And I remember he came up to kind of congratulate me, and he started walking towards me like this, and he literally started walking like this, and then started walking sideways, like he was like hammer drunk. Like literally, I'm like, oh, I should. I walked over, how to catch him, and I came, sat him back down. Like he was concussed, for sure. But um, I remember that was cool to be part of that. Wow, fuck, that's right. <laughs> how was Del Furo as a uh, as a promoter? He was a good promoter back then. I mean, those those shows are that's a shit show. That's a lot. Those guys, those guys, you know, wear many hats trying to get that shit done. Um, so yeah, he's obviously been a big staple as far as Southern California MMA goes as well, being a promoter and being a coach and obviously Alliance is a staple gym down, uh, down there. So yeah, I thought he's done that. I, 
I would, I mean, I know he's on the fire department, so, but I would love to have just honest answers coming out of him, how he was able to pull off doing shows in Tijuana without a hitch, or at least no hitches that, you know, made national news. I'm sure there's a lot there. It's just, we hadn't heard about it, um, you know, without any national issues, because I mean, there's been several promoters from the United States that have attempted to promote in Mexico and none of them have went well. They've either died or, you know, had their pockets turned inside out. Yeah. Yeah. I know he had, he had a couple of shows down there and they must have had connections. One of my teammates at DLT, um, he's friends with all those guys too, but yeah, I don't know. Crazy. Yeah. Mexico was crazy back there. We used to, we used to go down there for fun, just cross the border and hang out on the weekends and head back. So it was just, you know, an hour drive from where we leave in Dana Point. Um, Fuck, wild times. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, he never had any instances at his shows where, you know, fighters turned up missing, which, yeah, you know, I, I'm sure everybody wasn't on their best behavior, but he somehow was able to kind of manage all of that. Yeah, and it was, it was in a for sure sketchy part of town. I remember Baby Rock, like it was... It could, yeah. I could obviously, like, if you didn't know where you were and you were just placed there, you would for sure think you're in a third world country. Like, for sure. Like, right as soon as you cross the border right there in Tijuana, it is fucking, it's like third world, especially back then. Well, you can, you know, from San Diego, you know where Tijuana is at because you just see the cloud, like the pollution yes. just hanging over the city. Fuck. And just like favelas almost just all, all, all over the hill, like everything. Yeah. Crazy. So you go from total combat, you fly back out to Japan. You made a, a pretty big statement there. You're in Pancrase, May 2nd, 2006. Takafumi Ito, who's, well, let's, let's, let's do the records here. Rob Emerson's five and six, very stout, tough five and six. Uh, Ito is 31, 23, and seven, and he's a Pancrase legend. Yeah, Ito. Did he got a 50 fight club member? <laughs> yeah, I remember that dude. He was tough, dude. All those guys are scrappy. All those little Japanese dudes out there, they're tough. They're scrappy. But what were the rules for that? Was that still the old pancreas with the uh with the pads on the feet? Um or uh, on no. the scene? No, Do just you, just just that big gloves. Yeah. Okay. So no rope escapes. No, nothing like that. Grabbing the ropes, yeah. <coughs> he was tough, man. Fuck, I think he was, yeah, southpaw. You know, it goes back to the old days of, of the rope escapes and stuff. So that, you know, if you have a 40 and 30 record with rope escapes, that's probably another 10 submit. You know, that's probably another, you know, they've been, that's a lot of active fights, you know, even sure. real veterans. So that, that must have been, um, I don't know, something that the people noticed that Pancrase had your back right away. Yeah, yeah they were cool. I think the, the, the guys that sponsor me, Ingram, they're a pretty well uh, connected uh, company out there with those guys, but it was cool. I mean, just learning the history about it all. And like, it's all like Yakuza ran, you know what I mean? Like fighting sports over there and as well as out here. Like it's, uh, it's awesome. It's all, it all comes from like, you know, pretty, pretty interesting background. Even, even the UFC, like a lot of people don't know, but I remember Dana, after we did the ultimate fighter, we had like a dinner after he, he told us a story. Like, you know, the Fertitta brothers dad in real life was uh was it De Niro that was in the movie Casino? They're yeah. third-generation casino owners from Las Vegas. Right. So uh, De Niro's <laughs> character De Niro's character in Casino, I think, was the Fertitta brothers' father in real life, or his grandfather, one of them. 
And so it all started like right then the, the station casinos is kind of the last thing they sold off before they went like legit. But it's pretty interesting. And I mean, like, that's why I think, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, where there's gambling and betting involved, I think there's some heavy hitters and some power players involved. And I think, uh, you know, boxing has gone, gotten uh, soiled with uh, that stuff, you know, as far as people like, you know, taking fights and I don't know, with these Rob, YouTube guys. I'm going to be just very honest about this. I enjoy commissions. I really love how they regulate everything and yeah. charge everybody at, at every instance. But I preferred when, you know, the, the dirty money was involved. You know, you might not have gotten a fair shake, but you can't, you always knew what you were getting into at yeah. least prior to it. Um, yeah. There's sometimes there's honor amongst thieves and uh, I prefer that era. Yeah. For sure. I absolutely agree. Those are where, where our sports were birthed from, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, now you got these little fucking, these, these commissioners and these like judges that I've never even competed before. And then they're fucking, you know what I mean? Like even just given like my boy, Jared, this last fight of the weekend, like how's one judge going to give all five rounds to Izzy? Like we clearly won that third round, no matter how you fucking slice that thing. We won the third round. Now we're splitting fucking hairs, but I thought we were on fucking round three and five. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, at least at know. least let it reflect. Yeah, it, exactly. You're talking about versus, yeah, you're gonna yeah. grade. You know, grade. You're gonna grade a postcard. Grade it fucking accurate. I mean, your 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 job as a, as a critiqueist is fucking crucial. It's important. So there's no margin of error for these fucking knuckleheads to be calling fights. And and you know that's also the problem though with fucking uh, commentating. You know, because I believe these judges are listening to to the to the the, the show that the commentators are, are 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 the narrating. You know, and the commentator affects the narrative. But here I am watching my boy piece up Izzy with a four piece combo, and you guys don't fucking say a fucking word. You know, Izzy faints or jabs. Is oh my god, another shot by the champion, and then here comes Jared. Ding ding ding, literally lands a four piece and not a fucking word. Right. This is like the problem with commentating and how it can yeah. tell and tell a narrative and how that narrative affects the judges calling. And people don't stop to think about it, but that is politics. Right. That's politics. And now you don't know if those commentators are getting paid an extra to, to you know, kind of curve the narrative or what, because if you're if any honest fucking fan or, you know, uh, of the sport, then you're going to you're going to see that, you know, and. I've always yeah. been, I don't know. Creates like a recency bias. Well, did, was there anything that took place backstage between you and Ido? Was there any bad blood or anything? Ido, I don't think so. Not that I know of. Because his teammate requested to fight you August 27, 2006. You're back in Japan against Kenji Arai. Kenji's 10 and 8, 10, 8 and 2. From the same gym, it was it was almost as if it was like a, a revenge match. Yeah, I remember some shit like that. I remember that got me fucking psyched. I was like, dude, fuck that little twerp. His boys can get it too. Like, yeah, I think they were just kind of, I don't know what it was. I think his, his fucking boy wanted to be brave. But I, that's right, because I remember fucking that. And that made it personal to me. And I was like, what? He's asking to fight me? And that lit a special fire under me. Dude. I fucking, <laughs> I, I beat his ass too, I think. Yeah. The Ultimate Fighter Season 5, what were tryouts like? I didn't have tryouts. I didn't have to fucking show up to the tryouts. I got, uh, man, crazy. I uh, 
driving home from training. Where, where was I training at the time? Might have been like Timo Yama. Uh, yeah, I was at OC uh, uh, Timo Yama, but I think that night I was dra- training over uh, OC Muay Thai, and I was driving home from there. And I was on the phone with uh, the Charles Mask from Tap Out, right? And that weird boy, he, he sponsored me for a long time, coming up through the ranks. And he called me, we're kind of shooting the shit. He's like, hey, bro, he's like, I, got, I got someone on the phone for a little while. I'm going to put you on with him. He's like, hey, it's, a, it's the producer for Ultimate Fighter. They're like, uh, then she's all, she, you're pretty much a shoe in Just, you know, introduce yourself, you know, and do the thing. He's like, I got you, player. So put her on the phone and. It was cool, man. I just started. He's like, hey, she's like, um, you know, I, I heard so much about you. I guess they said they were rec- recommending me from so many different promoters that they had me like on a, on a good list or whatever. And then she said, uh, I was just kind of making her laugh on the phone. And um, she said, you know what? She's like, I like you already. She's like, we've already been recommending you by uh, all these other people. They're like, uh, we're just going to fly you out. And as long as you pass medicals, you're on the show. So I literally just got like, a, I literally walked on. I just flew out there and, and did the medicals and was out there with everybody and uh yeah it was uh you know um fuck still just a very uh naive and ignorant stage in my life fuck you know i mean partying and drinking and not taking it seriously and being just good enough to be good in southern california but i wish i took it uh more serious you know especially that that season of my life getting on the show and everything how old were you I think I was 24 or 25 getting on the show. I'm 24. Yeah. So when did you have your first legal drink? Because you were, you were straight edge throughout high school. Yeah. Uh, I think right, <coughs> right out of high school. I think right out of high school, I think 19, 20. Yes. Cause I had that first fight that I fought out and I remember having a beer in my hand. So yeah, I had to be 19. Um, yeah, but um, so you get the Ultimate Fighter House before any of the fights take place. You do a little graffiti saying "Team or Team Pulver sucks," and yeah. fellow California native uh, Nate Diaz takes offense to that. Yeah, yeah. So we were we were we were like boys pretty much before like all that shit went down. So it was like he's about California guys. Yeah. 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 He told me after two, he's like, you know, he kind of blew up. Like, who the fuck, who the fuck wrote that shit? And then he, he and then he's like, fuck, he didn't know it was me. And then he's like, fuck, I already blew up. I had to fucking back it up, <laughs> you know, which I totally get for sure, you know, but like for sure it wasn't directed like towards him or any of the guys. Like we were literally just fucking bored to death out of our fucking minds. And uh, they told you that you would fucking lose your mind after day three. Like they take away your phone. Um, any kind of magazine or reading material and then no TV and no music. And you realize very, you realize very quickly how much even just like a, a song on a commercial is like therapy. When they take that stuff away, they're like, yeah, three days is, is what we've seen everyone lose their mind. And we're like, no, nah, we're all fucking happy to be here. This is cool. You mean like three weeks? Or, no, it's day three every single time. As sure as shit, day three, people started fucking losing their shit, getting fucking bored, like wanting to, and, um, it was crazy. Like withdrawal, do you think? It was, a, it was. It was just like, it was a. It's weird. I don't know. It's um. It was a weird. Me being incarcerated before that definitely helped me deal with the nerves and all that shit of like. Dude, Brian Garrity said the same thing. He said, "If I wasn't in jail, I would have went nuts." He's like, "But I enjoyed it there." You know, he did it. He did a few months too. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you learn just to keep to your own and. 
you know, you get un- getting when you get uncomfortable and you get taken out of your comfort zone, you know, that where growth, that's where growth takes place. And I mean, I firmly believe that. So, um, but it was cool, man. Yeah, it was a crazy learning experience. You know, I gotta, I gotta, you know, um, be a part of something that's, you know, you know, iconic when it comes to the sport of MMA. And I was just back out there at the, UF- the UFC Apex and the first jersey on the wall was right there, it was our season right there. So it was pretty cool. I took a picture with it and stuff. And BJ was actually out there at the fight. So I got to see him. So, man, it's been cool. It's been fun. So Nate Diaz, what was it like living with him? Um, man, he's the same motherfucker. He's the same dude that he was, you know, then that he is now. Like, yeah, same fucking. It was cool. Yeah, I actually got along with him and Gray. Um, and, uh, man, more than anybody, him and Gray. And, uh, fuck. Yeah, it was cool. Um, a lot of guys are on that show for the wrong reasons and kind of fucking bother people. And but Nate was a real motherfucker. He was there. He was there to compete. You know what I mean? And I, I know, I know, I know who he was. I, I watched Nick fight a few times. I watched Nick fight not. Um, King was a King of the Ring tournament up in Northern, up in uh, Fresno. He fought three nights and three times that night. I think against Je, uh, Je, Jesse Jackson. Something Jack, that Jesse knew was on a previous Ultimate Fighter season two or three. He hopped the wall and left. Is it Jesse Taylor? No, not Jesse Taylor. Jesse Taylor was after him. He was like Jesse Taylor was season six or seven. This okay. Jackson guy, oh Jeremy Jackson, it was Jeremy. Jeremy Jackson. Jackson. Oh, did you guys jump the wall? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he saw me. Yeah, he left the wall and then he came back. So, but I saw Nick fight him. I think twice, and, and uh, so I knew the Diaz brothers were. I knew I knew Gray was a wrestler, but I thought I thought I was gonna do well. I thought I was gonna make it to the finals. And um, fuck, dude. Yeah, so you, you lose by rear naked choke. Dana White comes into the ring, congratulates you, and says it's quite possibly the you know one of the the best fight that the Ultimate Fighter has ever had. Uh, real happy with your performance. Yeah, it was cool. He said the fight could have been on the UFC card that was there in the next weekend or whatever or that weekend. So that was cool to have you know props by Dana or whatever for it. Um, now, did they back it up with a little cash? Because, like, when you go in there, and what's the contract like? Because I think that you you hear rumors. Other guys from other seasons may have confirmed you were getting like five hundred bucks a week. You had to stop the guy or win a bonus, or else you were fighting for free. What was what, what was your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it was weekly, like five hundred, and but then it was five thousand for every fight. So, oh, so you would just get five grand for the fight to take home? That's yeah, good. show up, show up flat fee for the for the expedition fights or whatever. Yeah, that's better. So yeah, not bad. Two, it was two rounds, two rounds, five thousand. But you know what I mean? Yeah, when yeah. we had uh, Stefan Bonner on, in essence, he completes the season, goes back home, and I think it plays out like over the next three or four, five months, and he's got to go back to work, even though he's on TV and they're not paying him. You can't fight, but you know you got to you got to make a living. Yeah, it's like that weird little bridge. Yeah, it's a trip. Helps though. That's good. By season five, they had that straightened out at least. That's that's not bad. Yeah. So, Gabe Rudiger has battles with Fudgy the Whale and Mrs. Wait, and. You're their first pick to get in. Do you think that was kind of an advantage to you for you because you're smaller, the smaller side of 155, to where some of the bigger guys you could play weight games with them? 
Yeah, for sure. I was kind of cruising right there, and I kind of felt that, like, you know, it was an opportunity might come because I just couldn't fathom the, the, the fact that I lost that quick. I thought for sure I was going to win that thing. And even the producers were like, come on, Robert, give us that storybook, you know, uh, uh, finish. You know, we've never had someone lose and then come back and win. Like, we want that storybook, you know, narrative, so make it happen. Like, they're pulling for me to win. And, man, I knew it. Fucking, I was going to get an opportunity. That's why I was in there cutting the weight. I knew, I knew, I knew fucking... I just knew that um, uh, what's his name wasn't going to make the weight game. I just knew I knew he didn't want to fight. It wasn't a matter of him because I think he could have made the weight. It's just I think he didn't want to fight. I think it was all bark, no bite. And I just knew that. So I had a fucking ski mask on on the fucking bike in the fucking sauna cutting that fucking weight. And um, fuck, dude. Lost that fucking fight with fucking Corey Hill. Another, Corey Hill. Another, another super close decision. But I thought my leg kicks did more damage than like a jab. And like, I mean, Dana said he thought I won too. You know, it was it wasn't a real eventful fight. But Corey Hill, I mean, how tall is he? Six four. I'm like six four. In that I'm talking about a six foot four, hundred and fifty five pounder that knows how to use his body, yeah. and he doesn't fight like. A lot of tall and long guys will fight with their arms on their body. He fought with his arms off his body, and he's he's a nightmare for anybody. Yeah, with yeah, a strong wrestling pedigree. Yeah, that's why, man. A lot of that stuff you couldn't really prep for. It was just a lot, so much of it was instinct. You know, so much of it was instinct, and uh, I think that was the one thing Marco kind of highlighted. Um, with my training was like, you know, cater to your instinct that you know how to fight, you know how to protect yourself, just cater to that. And, um, uh, yeah, I guess I carried a lot of that with me into the show. But, yeah. did, did you ever train with Frank Shamrock after he left the, uh, with the, at the Alliance right after he left Alliance town? I don't think so. No. Hmm. I thought you did. What was it like training with uh, Team Oyama? Oh, awesome. Yeah, I was there like seven or eight years, you know, all my friends. A um, lot of lot of good uh, Muay Thai sparring rounds, you know, a lot, a lot of guys that come down and visit and hang out. Joe Schilling would stop by and, you know, I'm a lot pet and a lot of, lot, of, lot of strong kickboxers out there. So it was cool. And I had fun because it was a more striking oriented team. So I had a lot of fun and uh, <clears throat> it was cool. You know, there wasn't too many gyms and choices back then. Uh, especially in Orange County. So, yeah, it was a good gym, good team, good memories. You know, I think of one of the unsung heroes that uh, probably needs to be talked about more is uh, Shane Del Rosario. He was first American Muay Thai world champion. Uh, I know yeah. you you guys were pretty close. Yeah, yeah. I remember that fight. He fought the, the WBC heavyweight champion. Um, fought like some kid from the Netherlands. I remember he fucking put that dude on skates. And when I remember that night, it was amazing. Yeah. His kickboxing record, I think, was 11-1. and one, But all of his knockouts were in, like, the very first round. Fascinating. Dude. I've seen that guy just floor people. And he was my best friend. Yeah, Shane was my best friend. We knew each other from high school and we started training and it happened. He was super intelligent. His dad wanted him to go to university and all that, go to UCLA. And, you know, he did his finish his studies. And as soon as he was done, I yanked him over and I got him on the mats over at Team Oyama. And he became a world champion super fast, you know, fighting for a lead XC and then strike force. And then, uh, you know, he got made his way to the UFC. 
the only losses he ever experienced are actually in the UFC against Pat Barry and um, um, fucking uh, who's the last light heavyweight from? He just watched uh, it. Um, he's from uh, Ohio out here. Oh, oh, uh, Stipe. Yo, Stipe, Stipe, dude, Stipe. I just watched it. He yeah, has in a world of trouble. Like, dude, dude, if you see how he performs in that fight, he could have been a world champion in MMA as well. Shane would have been the current world champion now. Shane was, yeah, so big and dense with so much, such fat. He was so fast and he hit so hard. His he was bone a good nail, too. Paul, his, his southpaw. And then his bone density to, to fast twitch muscle tissue. That is a very coveted thing of this sport, especially when we're talking about the high weight classes. Man, he kicked harder than anyone I've ever seen. Marco, he would fuck, he would fuck everybody up. I'm telling you, these kickboxing fights that would take him, but he would fucking floor motherfuckers. First round knockouts, huge ass guys. Um, and he was such a lovable guy, man. For sure, he would have been a current world champion. And, I think about it all the time and all of our close friends of how different life would have been, like how fun that would have been for, to, for both of us to be in the UFC. And man, I was just out there at the UFC this last weekend. I was just picturing Shane on the wall out there as one of the champs, like, cause Stipe was actually, there's a big image. And I thought about that Stipe fight, just how close this, you know, these, these victories and losses can make or break us. You know, he was so close to finishing Stipe, like in that fight, you know, you learn I, – I, I know it's just kind of one of those sayings that gets thrown around a lot, but it's true. You learn more from a loss than you do a win. Sure. And that Stipe fight, I, I think he would have made some cardio adjustments, maybe not stepped on the gas the entire time. He, he would have won that fight. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And he had, like, he had, he had kind of like a mental complex too, Shane. He always thought he was like the, the smallest big guy. You know, he knew he was a big guy, but he always had like a small, small man's complex in this big guy's body. And again, it's just these mental thoughts, these doubts we have of ourselves. You know what I mean? As athletes, as fighters, the mind is a, it's a, it's your most powerful tool or your, your strongest prison. You know what I mean? Wow. And that's in, that's in these combat sports or in life in general, you know? Yeah. Shane, uh, I, 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 Watching that Stipe fight, I just watched it last week. I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a real bold statement to say, oh, he could have been a world champion. I mean, it's something that people at the bar might throw around, but that's, that's a legitimate thing that could be associated with his name. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, for sure. For sure. For sure. One of the great, one of the best to ever do it. I'm telling you, that bone, that bone density plus that fast twitch, it's a, Oh, it's a special thing, dude. I mean, he he did a Uma Plata against uh, in Strike Force against what's his name, like for for big heavyweight guys to be pulling off submissions like that. And uh, he's not even a jiu-jitsu guy; he's a kickboxer. But he showed a wide range of variety of skill, a skill set. You know, did, did his passing surprise you? Um, yeah, it did surprise me. I remember, like it, like it happened just yesterday, but um. Yeah, I kind of separated myself from him the, the last six months before he before he passed. But um, yeah, I know he got in a, a really bad car accident and um, um, kind of went, you know, life went off track a little bit with all that stuff. And yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, 
but I also kind of knew I had, I kind of pursued my own goals and path and kind of broke ways and stopped talking to six months before then. And, but it's crazy, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a legacy that maybe he just started, he told them a little bit and like the little bit of people that know his short legacy, they see the potential like we're talking about right now. You're absolutely right. It's a very real possibility that he could have been the current, Dude. one of the greatest to ever do it. You know what I mean? You know, anybody that's calling bullshit right now, go watch his fight with Stipe. Go watch how many times he almost finished him, and it's just like his cardio caught up to him. He just – all he had to do was really pace himself and just coast, and he would have won that fight. You know, and, and, and Stipe at that time, I mean, I mean, yeah, and there's no need for me to even try to explain about Stipe and his background. Let's yeah. talk about the Ultimate Fight, uh, the Ultimate Fighter Season 5 finale, June 23rd, 2007. Did you know you were going to be on it or was it kind of a surprise to you? Uh, I mean, I knew I was going to be on it. I didn't know I was going to fight Greg, bro. It was, it was such a dumb time in my life. Like I was partying like fucking like an idiot the whole entire show, like before the show, after the show, like not taking it seriously. And then they call me they're like, fuck Rob, they're like, they're like uh, you want to, you want to fight Greg or you want to tell him or you want us to tell him? I'm like, fuck. I'm like, I knew it. Let me tell him. Bro. So I remember, I remember calling him, bro. I'm on the finale. You are too. He's like, guess who you're fighting? He's like, what, bro? I'm like, it's me. <laughs> He's like, oh, fuck, really? Well, yeah. He's like, all right, I'm fine. we'll talk after. Like, yeah, it was, uh, it was cool. It was fun. I'm, I'm, I'm glad uh, uh, I got a fight on the finale. I, uh, I had a major rib injury going into that fight, but I knew if I pulled out, there, there might have gone my chance for getting the contract. So I was going to show up and fight regardless. I was going to give my best for fucking one round, hopefully, and see how it went. And then I ended up going the second round. And then, yeah, I fucking that slam just completely dislodged. I think my rib's still sticking out. Yeah, this still sticks out of the side. And um, fuck, so I couldn't continue anyways. But had I just, like, fucking, you know what I mean, gone to the death, all I had to do was fucking roll over and that fight would have been a victory, you know. But what a crazy freak thing, you know what I mean? Like, he went to go slam me. His head was literally under my arm. And he just fucking, boom, hit his head just at the right angle to where he was out. Yeah, so Gray knocked himself out, and, you know, you say fight to the death. Some will say bad rib injuries are worse than death, you know? And Yeah. But, fuck, I mean, you were in some spot. Back. You audibly yelled. So, I mean, most people wouldn't even have came out for that second round. You did. You know, when you went to take your medicine. You know, we talked earlier about a previous opponent that didn't want to give you the satisfaction of beating, you know, of beating him where you got off the stool and said, man, let me hit, let me take my medicine. And, um, dude, it's just, it's a, it went viral. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. That's only happened. I think one, a couple other times in combat sports where guys get simultaneously finished. I mean, double chaos. I, I think, uh, my last opponent, the last guy just fought crazy horse. He, he knocked out, uh, KJ moves. Like that. I think in strike force, they both threw a hook bump at the same time. And KJ dropped Crazy Horse, but Crazy Horse fucking knocked out KJ. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, well, with Gray Maynard, um, it was ruled a no contest. Um, you know, you got injured pretty bad. How soon after that did you get back into the gym? Oh, I don't, rem- I don't remember. I think I took some time off and that it was pretty bad, but fuck, I don't remember what my next fight was. I think you were at no limits at that point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was still Timo Yama. It was Timo Yama, but the, the gym we were at was called the No Limit Gym. Okay. 
but yeah. No, I, I got a question. You said you were at this point you 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 were partying. Is the UFC house like, hey, I need more vodka, and they bring you a bottle? Is it literally like that? Is that like one yeah. of the doors? Yeah, and BJ on them are making me like they're making me like they had weed butter, and they're making like these protein shakes, and just putting like massive amounts of weed in this. So I was like drinking those, and fucking just yeah, I was I was partying a lot, living in living in Southern California, living in Newport Beach, and surrounded by it was just. There's just girls and booze and blow like everywhere. And it was just other. It was hard to be like a fighter and have someone, you know, hold yourself accountable. And and uh, there's a level of discipline. It's hard for sure. And that's honestly why I moved out to the lab and joined these guys in Arizona. The last leg of my career because they have everything under one roof. And um, yeah, actually, after Shane passed away, I kind of right right at the same time I got kind of. Uh, I I, uh, I got suspended by Bellator and kind of went off like a drinking tangent and all that shit, feeling sorry for myself and kind of like a rock bottom and kind of like wanted to recalibrate my career and life and everything. That's when I headed out to Arizona and, you know, started new and fresh. I'm still out there now. So are you sober now? Um, yeah, from my chemicals and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I only, I only fuck with stuff from the earth, you know, and that's uh, cool. And yeah, I, I definitely do not put mushrooms and, and weed marijuana in a category of drugs. I, I study even... yeah, alchemy, alchemy and hermetics is where medicine comes from, is from is from hermetic medicine. And there's a reason why the caduceus is the global medical symbol. I study hermetic literature, hermetic sciences and alchemy. And I know all about um, herbs and medicine and the spirit of these things and what they do. And this is why when people say they're drinking spirits, drinking wine and spirits, they're literally drinking the spirit of that particular vine and vineyard. When you smoke weed, you're smoking the spirit of that particular strain, right? And uh, it's a fascinating spiritual concept, man. And uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, we're wrapping up. Obviously, um, you know, in your career, obviously, it's it goes much further. Um, at UC eighty one, you fight Kita uh, Nakamura. Um, yeah. Not a lot of guys that make it to the UFC get to have their hand raised. And based on like everybody that is, is still listening right now, you see the journey that this guy went through, the difficulty. It's like it's like driving a it's like driving a BMX through mud. And then you come out of it and you get your hand raised against Nakamura. Fuck yeah. How did that feel? They counted me out too. They counted me out that fight. I remember Nate actually called me before that fight and said, "Hey, dude, that they, that Nakamura guy's a beast. He was fucking. He said he was fucking people up at, at Nate's gym up in up up in uh, uh, you know Stockton. He had some fucking bangers up there too, you know. And so he said, I said he was fucking about jiu-jitsu wise and boxing wise. He said Katara was tough, but I went out there and I'm like, dude, fuck this guy. And I I took it to him. I remember I, I remember just my I believed in my anti wrestling and I knew I could out punch this guy. I like pushed him down at one point. He was six, six foot, six, one big frame. But yeah, it was cool. It was, I felt right. I felt, I felt like deserving. Like I deserved to fucking win the UFC, you know? You went in there with the warrior spirit and they turn around and you turn around and you're a pretty big underdog. UFC 87, August 9, 2008 against Manny Gambarian. Like people were vocal about finally this guy's going to get his ass beat. I remember that shit, dude. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's crazy. I remember training for that fight, and then I remember walking out to the ring. I remember right before I was walking out, I remember watching his little fucking thing on the TV. How Manny said he was gonna come out there and, and fucking throw on me. He's, I'm gonna go out there and fucking throw punches. I'm gonna throw the fastest punches you've ever seen. 
I remember watching them literally the TV being, what? Your fucking short little ass is going to throw on me? I'm like, let's go, motherfucker. I remember walking out there like, fuck, let's go. Like, all right, what's up? And I remember him throwing my like, whole game shit, plan changed. Yeah. <laughs> I remember he wasn't kidding. But dumbest thing, he, dumbest thing he could have done. I was trying to fucking swing at me. I mean, I remember him fucking chasing Jason. I remember I just planting through, bang. And I remember, I remember it felt like I hit air. It felt like I, I remember it went right through his chin. I didn't even hit anything. But those are the shots that you know fucking land. I didn't hit anything. So he went down. And I remember I went to go follow up and I shot that put him out. I remember I was on one knee. I was on one knee and hit that uppercut bomb and his head slammed. And um, I remember that last punch I threw. I remember the ref stopping the punch. I remember my intention when I threw that last punch. I was going to fucking try to decapitate that man. I was going to swing so fucking hard. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is the sickest sport ever. I get fucking, I'm going to fuck. And I remember just hauling off. I mean, and, um, I never threw a punch with so much fucking violence intentions and he stopped it. I remember thinking, no, like that was fucking devastating. But it went down to 11 seconds. I knocked, I knocked that motherfucker out on the 11 second mark. Those guys have a down reporter as 12 seconds. Give me my one second. Mother. It's 11 seconds. You, know I mean? you get into that top five. Yeah, get into that yeah, top five. For yeah. sure. For sure. Yeah. Dude, your, your, your career is absolutely fascinating. And now you're coaching people. You know, you got Cannoneer that just uh, main evented at UFC. That's that's a pretty big deal, man. Yeah, it's awesome. We got a lot of good guys over at the MMA lab. It's a, it's a it's a it's an awesome thing to be a part of. We're like a university over there. You know, we're like an MIT or a Stanford when it comes to mixed martial arts gym. Gyms where uh, it's a there's a bunch of knowledge over there under that roof, and we got a lot of professors, and it's really cool. It's a lot of hands on, and that's uh, awesome, dude. I love it. It's a uh, or like part of the X-Men, you know, and I, I tell Coach Crouch all the time where it's like Professor Xavier's school for the gifted. Or we're just a bunch of fucking mutant X-Men there every day, you know, sharpening our blades. And I, I would be doing nothing else in this life. Yeah, he's, he's got a good thing there, man. Robert Crouch, he's got a yeah. good thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, he's been doing that over there for, yeah, I think 13 years. They've had the lab, you know, the MMA team for over 10 years and we're going to keep on going. We're peaking over there. So we've already grown out of our building. we got like three more years left of the lease, but we're going to buy land and build from the ground up even bigger than we're at now. And um, it's cool. You know, talent begets talent. we got a lot of tough guys there. I think more athletes are coming to be attracted to our spot because we have so many good guys. This last fight with Jared hopefully draws even more talent to our spot. So, Yeah, Rob, you put your work in. You put the time in. Um, you know, we, we have this this podcast to kind of preserve the memories of the old school mixed martial art days. And, you know, we always put together kind of like a list of people and, you know, of course you got your big names, everybody knows it, but there's the foundation that, that builds the house. And you've been on our short list for a while and we just hadn't reached out to you. And dude, we really appreciate your time, bro. Man, I appreciate you guys. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been cool just to have talked to guys that know about the sport. They're old school fans and, I mean, just to talk about some of the names we brought up today in the shows, it's crazy. It's uh, nostalgic. So, man, yeah, great conversation, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. For sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to have you back, too, at some point, get yes. further into the UFC Bellator stuff. And, you know, then you, you did some interesting fights in Poland and England. And, yeah. You know, you just bare knuckle. Yeah. yeah. And you fought for, uh, for Masvidal. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was gonna fight again in September, but I fuck. I think I gotta get I tore something on my fucking 
I never had an injury before, but I tore something on my scapula, tore off. I gotta go fucking get it operated on. But I'm gonna fight again. I'm gonna fight fucking a few more years. I, I no, no, no fucking. There's no fucking stopping that I can see in the horizon. I'm gonna fucking fight as long as I fucking can. I'm forty. <laughs> I'm forty right now. I'm forty right now. I'm gonna fucking fight till I'm fucking. You know I mean fifty if I can? You know I mean I don't give a fuck. I never awesome. lost. I never lost a drop of blood. I've never lost a drop of blood. I'm in there sparring at the lab with all these fucking killers. You know what I mean? That's, you know what I mean? No, you still you still in shape. You're taking care of your body. You experience wise, you got you know experience enough for three careers. So yeah, yeah, a lot of guys say that. It's like I wish I knew then what I know now. You know, I'm more sharp and intelligent now than I was ten or fifteen years ago. Even through all the fist fights and all the sparring rounds, I I fucking swear to God, I'm more intelligent and sharp now than I was. <laughs> And it's, it's crazy. Knowledge is power. I promise you that. Well, well here, there, there's certain benchmarks to get that knowledge to be, you know, that in order to be considered somebody that's, I'm not going to say journeyman, because that's not the right word, but an experienced fighter. You had to get ripped off by a promoter. You got that in your first fight. You got to take a plane to somebody else's backyard and get ripped off on a decision. Got that out of the way with, with, <laughs> with Melvin Gillard. And it's yeah. just like you, you've been there. You've had teammates that have passed. You've had friends that, you know, have come up on the wrong, wrong end of a bad decision, you know, more than just the ring. And, you know, things of that nature, it's just, you know, your job and duty is to pass that along. For sure. That's why I love this sport. I tell everyone, like, I've always been a bigger fan than a fighter. And I've, uh, man, I love, uh, I love, I just love this sport so much. It's awesome to see you growing. I love to see you. Um, if there's one sport to represent human potential, it's, it's, mar it's mixed martial arts. Yeah. And it's cool to see it grow and they get the respect and love from the people and to still sing and grow and to still be part of it, man. So that's, I'm honored and privileged, you know. So this is going to go out on Monday. I'll send you all the links, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate Thank it. you for your time. Miguel Dorati, MMA Detective Mike Davis here. And uh, we are wrapping up another deep dive, a West Coast warrior, Rob Emerson. I think you delivered, man. What do you think? Miguel, if you look online, people dump over all over the Lords, like the little straight edge gang that he was in. <laughs> but if you look at the people that came out of it, you know, Shane Del Rosario, Ian McCall, Eric Apple, Rob Emerson, you know, you got four guys that fought at really high levels. And it's, like, there's something to say, you know, maybe if drugs were involved in those kids' lives, you know, I'm not saying that all of their actions were good and virtuous, but, you know, they at least subtracted drugs and alcohol from the equation. Fuck. Yeah, they subtracted drugs and alcohol from the equation, and it produced some really high-end talent, you know, that, that area of California. But Rob was brutally honest. Um, that's one of, our, one of our better interviews. Yeah, you know, the thing about... A guy like that is is the way he came up and he took losses in fights that he was never going to get like the big a big huge payday or anything like that because any promoter could hold that against him. Hey, you're one and four or whatever. But people who knew about fighting knew that you know oh. that he was in the neighborhood already, and you know I, I'm glad at the end that he did get to go to Japan and as a uh, you know a few. Things like that. Now he's trying. The, the thing about it, he said he's still looking to compete, and probably right now reminds me a little bit of a an old interview we did of Carlo Prater too. A couple of guys yeah. 
that, you know, put a pre, that always, you know, maybe partied a little bit, but usually kept a clean lifestyle and uh, put in the work and stuff and still approaching 40 are fitter than ever, you know, and they're dedicated the experience to the craft and stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to see when Emerson steps in there again and uh, you know, more power to him, man. And, and, and I like the guys, like he reminds me, you mentioned Ian McCall too. It looks like both guys, you know, a head on their shoulders, moved on and, and have done, you know, the right transition into the next portion of their lives. You know, not they're not hanging on yeah. really, you know. And, you know, Rob's still fighting, but he's also trained cannoneer. And, you know, you can tell in the conversation, the vibe, he's got business going on. He's got a lot of studying that he's doing and things like that. And he's into He's into taking care of himself. So now all, all around, I thought I'd be impressed. I was even more impressed than I was. I yeah. like the guy. Well, you know, when you look at who we're going to get, who we're going to get, you know, obviously you're, you're looking at the big names that of course you want to draw people to this, but Miguel, if you kind of look at your matchmaking style, you always liked the journeyman that took really, really hard fights that fought anyone, anytime. And you you took care of them and gave them love. Emerson falls into that category. Like he had Bodog. Well, you know, I continued. never booked him, right? <laughs> but yeah, but, I but, think you're right. But you would have. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he, he would have fit yeah. right in. Um, I'm going to look up here just so I don't say something silly. But he, he there's a lot about him that reminds me of, of several guys that, you know, put in the work and maybe didn't get the respect. And, um, you know, another guy who kind of started out like with a couple of losses on his record and stuff like that, that maybe never got the respect was uh, that we interviewed was Derek Noble. And they may have yeah. a lot in common. Dangerous to anybody on the planet. And the people in the business knew that. Um, same thing goes for Emerson. So, you know, Rob, Rob yeah. deserves to be remembered uh, for his MMA career, hopefully. And he's a, he's a great guy. Like, you could tell right away, like, if he's at a party, one, he stands out. I mean, a guy looks every bit of a hoodlum as, as, <laughs> as you can get. But he's incredibly educated. He's bright. He made yeah, mistakes. He, he cares early about his life. family and kids. You could tell that in the interview. Yeah. You know? But he has a tattoo on his head. Come on, you know. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, But here, in life, everyone's going to make mistakes. Every moment isn't going to be your proudest. And you should really judge a person not on that, but what they've done to correct themselves since then. And you know, you're looking at a guy that's still in the craft, teaching others. He's got a ton of experience, a ton of knowledge, and he's sharing it with people. I mean, isn't that what, if you can change one human being, your, your job here on this planet is, you know, I'm not going to say complete, but it's a success. And somebody like Rob, you could tell in our interview, he's probably touched quite a few people. He put in, he put in a lot of miles in the sport. I think you could tell in the interview, you know, there were a couple of times I think he that we took him to remember a few things that he hadn't thought of in a while, you know, and, yeah. and, and uh, they usually were, you know, with him coming up on the short end of the stick, either on luck or, you know, pay or, or whatever it is. So more power to him too. And, and again, like I said, we seem to have moved on and, you know, we we do these interviews kind of expecting like some tragic stories got bitter dudes and, and dudes that, you know, you know, maybe haven't gotten their lives together afterwards. And, you know, 
Emerson's way beyond that. Like, I, you yeah. don't have to worry about this kid and, you know, this guy anymore, this man. So that's good. You know, I, I'm more power to him. Very impressed. Yeah. 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 Generally a good guy. Ladies and gentlemen, please like, share, subscribe. We've got Abu Dhabi Jiu-Jitsu Pro coming to the Chicagoland area, July 23rd. You can register on AJPTour.com. We've got Gi and No Gi. Please come out. A top mount apparel is one of our sponsors for the event. They've been fantastic. And Miguel, you are booking the Showtime FC event on UFC Fight Pass. Yeah, it's August 12th in Milwaukee. Uh, it's an outdoor event at the ball field there. I think it's called Franklin Field. And, um, you know, kind of psyched to be in the business again. We'll see what we get. You know, it's still a month away, so I'm sure the card will change a little bit, but... Uh, getting to know some of the new people and, you know, having fun Good. doing it. So. Excellent. So ladies and gentlemen, please like, share, subscribe. Vegan Higgler. Thank you so much. Mike Crane. We appreciate it. Genghis Conrad. Always, you know, nice to see you pop up every once in a while. Sec Pro Zinc. Anybody that shares this podcast is helping. We've added up all of our downloads together. We're just over 120 episodes and we're almost we're, we're probably going to break 400,000 downloads by the end of, or 400,000 impressions by the end of the month. So it's greatly appreciated. You know, it kind of makes us feel good seeing those numbers. And um, thank you so much. Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.